Hello, my lovely listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Miss Independent Podcast. I'll start off with a quick life update. As always, wedding planning's been not what I expected it to be, to say the least. I got an email from our wedding planners a couple weeks ago saying that they had a conflict with the hotel that we chose as our venue, and they won't be working with them in the future. So we either needed to find a new venue or find new planners, but we like our wedding venue. So we decided to stick with it and we ended up deciding to find new planners. We realized as we're going through it, planning a destination wedding, that there aren't really that many things that we need to sort out. Food's covered, cocktail hour, reception, all that's taken care of. The only thing left to plan is the decor and the fun stuff. And I like doing that stuff anyways. And we do get a wedding coordinator, like a wedding day of coordinator to help plan and make sure everything runs smoothly the day of. So at this point, I think I'm just going to take on the planning of the fun stuff, as I call it. But I'll keep you guys posted. I'm going to do a deep dive and talk about my experiences planning a destination wedding next week. For today's episode, because it's coming out on International Women's Day, I figured I would honor and celebrate some of the amazing trailblazing women that have come before me and have radically transformed life as we know it. So I want to share some stories of women you've probably never heard of that have had massive impact on our world. And I want to highlight different kinds of stories. Women that were in STEM. STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, by the way, for anyone who's never heard the term. So women in STEM, women that came up with inventions and new discoveries. Women in finance, obviously. The OG badass inventors and entrepreneurs and even political activists that fought for our rights. Highlighting and celebrating these women is so important because either directly or indirectly, they moved the needle to highlight inequality, and they gave us the rights that we often don't think about on a daily basis. In the modern world, women have all these rights. We can own property, we can have bank accounts, we can start businesses, And in many parts of the world, women still face legal and cultural barriers to things like owning property and opening bank accounts. But the world's evolving. In Saudi Arabia, for example, in 2019, women were allowed to apply for passports and travel without the consent of their male guardians, which was a huge win for the situation there. But if we look at basic rights, like owning property, I want to dive into this in detail. In the U.S., That first happened for women in 1839, and it was the Married Women's Property Act, which was passed in Mississippi, which drove that. It was a set of laws that allowed women to own property, including bank accounts, in their own name. It was the first time that women were allowed to own property in their own name, but only married women. Non-married women weren't given that independence until the early 20th century, where the legal system basically stopped treating women as dependents of their husbands or fathers. So only in the 1920s did non-married women get access to this right in the U.S., and it wasn't until the 1960s, 1964 to be exact, that gave women access to credit and other financial services. There was a really pivotal law that was passed as a part of the Civil Rights Act, which made it illegal for banks and other lenders to discriminate on a basis of race, color, religion, and gender. So it wasn't just a win for women, it was a win for everyone. And the U.S. has always been a really early adopter of change. I want to talk about Canada specifically, because that's where I'm living right now. And 
in Canada, this came a lot later than our American friends. The exact year that non-married women were able to open bank accounts in Canada, it's pretty difficult to pinpoint because it varied by province and financial institution, but it's generally recognized that this shift happened in the mid-20th century. So we're talking 1950s, 1960s, 30 to 40 years later than our U.S. counterparts. So the next time you go to the bank, you pay a bill, you take out cash, think about the fact that only years ago, that was impossible if you were a single woman. Most of us have grandparents or even parents older than this who were alive before this happened. So the law no longer treats us like property, like dependents of our fathers or our husbands. We have the right to make our own financial decisions, to take control of our financial futures. So don't take financial independence for granted. As you listen to some of these stories, I want you to put yourself in their shoes. Think about the world as it was during the time that they were alive. I feel like it gives the weight of their accomplishments that much more meaning. So let's get into some of these stories. The first one is that of Ada Lovelace. And this is the story of the world's first computer programmer. Her full name is Augusta Ada King. She was the Countess of Lovelace, born in London, England. Obviously, because outside of Western University, there's nothing good that ever came from London, Ontario. But Ada Lovelace was born in 1815 in the early 19th century. And to help you paint a picture of what was going on around that time, she was born in the Napoleonic era. The French Revolution just happened. It had a pretty significant impact on Europe. Napoleon Bonaparte just finished fighting the Napoleonic Wars. And in Britain, the Industrial Revolution was in full, full swing. So she's born into this era of innovation. New machines are being developed, new methods of production, transportation, all of that is coming to life. And we're entering an era of mass production and global trade. And she's born into pretty influential parents. Her dad is Lord Byron, and his wife is Annabella Milbank. What's really fascinating about her life is that she was actually her dad's only legitimate child. So she was the only legitimate child of the poet Lord Byron. You may have heard of him before. His life was pretty scandalous, and his writing reflected that. He was known for having a lot of different love affairs with both men and women, and his political views often put him at odds with the British establishment. And he actually was exiled after. But her parents separated pretty soon after she was born, and her mother tried to raise her alone, keeping her as far away from her father's influence as she could. So she never knew her father, and her mom was always paranoid that she was going to inherit her dad's erratic temperament and... Because of that, she made sure that she was tutored in science and in mathematics, which in the early 1800s was pretty rare for a female. Where her life gets really interesting is in 1833, when she's 17, Ada meets Charles Babbage, who's a mathematician and an inventor. She meets him at a party. And at the time, Babbage was working on this machine called the analytical engine which could perform these complex calculations, and we consider that the great-grandfather of the modern computer. Ada, interacting with Babbage at this party, she becomes fascinated by the work that he's doing, and she begins to study his work really in depth. As she's studying math and science, and all these ideas are coming together, so she's working with Babbage, he kind of becomes her mentor, and then he asks her to translate 
this article that she was working on that explains the analytical edge. And she translates the article, but not only does she do that, she also adds extensive pages of her own notes. And in these notes, she explains how the machine could be used to perform a lot of different tasks far beyond just simple arithmetic. Things like composing music and creating graphics. She wrote an algorithm to this engine that could compute Bernoulli numbers. These notes were three times longer than the article. And now we recognize that as the world's first computer program, which makes Ada Lovelace the first computer programmer in the world. And unfortunately, a lot of her work was overshadowed by the fact that she was Lord Byron's daughter, but her contribution to computer science and engineering, it was pretty much forgotten for years after her death. And it wasn't until the mid 20th century that her work was actually rediscovered and recognized for having a major contribution to the field. In today's world, Ada Lovelace is celebrated as being the pioneer of computer science, and she's a symbol of women's contribution to technology. Her work on the analytical edge laid foundations for modern computing and her vision for computers, using them as a tool for creativity, for expression. It continues to inspire generations of scientists, engineers, and artists. Next on the roster of influential women you've probably never heard of is Lillian Bland. And she was born in the Isle of Man, which is a tiny island between Ireland and the UK. And she was also born to a family of pretty interesting people. Her dad was an engineer and inventor. Her mom was an artist. And she was the youngest of nine. Kind of wild to think about. Imagine having eight different brothers or sisters and having to share resources with all of them. But I guess that's why she turned out the way that she did, because she was constantly in this stimulating environment, forced to be creative, especially when you've got eight other siblings and you've got to entertain yourself. So from a young age, Lillian shows an interest in mechanics and engineering. She's often coming into her dad's workshop where she learned how to repair and build machines. And as a teenager, she becomes interested in this new thing called aviation. She gets a postcard from her uncle, and then she becomes fascinated with aviation. And she decides she's going to start designing and flying machines. So in 1909, she moves to an area near Belfast in Ireland. She sets up a workshop in her mother's greenhouse, and she starts building a monoplane. And she calls it the Mayfly, and she planned to fly it herself. She gets a lot of attention in the press. People start getting really interested with what she's doing, and they start calling her the Flying Lady. And then on August 31st, 1910, Lillian manages her first flight in the Mayfly, becoming the first woman in the world to design, build, and fly her own aircraft. It's only a few hundred meters, not very far, but it's a significant achievement that paved the way for women in aviation. And throughout her life, she continues to design and build aircrafts. In 1915, she moves to England, and then she starts working as an aircraft mechanic, and then as a test pilot during World War I. She goes on to live a really long life, and she inspires women all around the world to take on massive risk. If Lillian Bland can design, build, and fly a plane in the early 20th century, I hope you can see that you can go after and pursue whatever goal you have to. 
The next woman that I want to talk about deserves so much more credit than she's gotten. Her name is Margaret Hamilton. Everybody knows the name Neil Armstrong, but few know Margaret Hamilton. And her story starts in the early 1960s, where a brilliant young computer scientist takes the world by storm. She starts her career working at MIT, and quickly, she makes a name for herself as a programming prodigy. She's so good at her job that NASA came calling and asks her to help her write a software for the Apollo space program. And you might be thinking, you know, writing a program for space travel is a piece of cake. But let me tell you, it's one of the most complicated things that a human had done at that time. And think about the fact that this is the 1960s, okay? Computers are still pretty primitive, and there's all sorts of potentials, problems, glitches that happen during a space mission. Also think about the fact that the size of this computer takes up a small room, okay? That's the era that we're in. But Margaret is undaunted, and she and her team, they work around the clock they build this software system that handles complex calculations that need to get the spacecraft to the moon and back. And when I say complex, I mean complex. Like we're talking millions of lines of code written in an era where, again, computers are the size of a small room. Like, this is no easy feat. Her greatest claim to fame comes during the Apollo 11 mission in 1969. So we all know Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin. They make their first steps on the moon. But Margaret's software is running in the background all while this is happening, making sure that everything ran smoothly, making sure that that spacecraft got there and got back properly. And things went wrong, as they inevitably do during space travel. But her software saved the day. So there was an unexpected alarm in the cockpit, and her program kicked into action, and it started prioritizing the most important tasks that needed to be done in order to get those astronauts safely back to Earth. Thanks to Margaret, the Apollo missions were a success, and they paved the way for space exploration for years to come. So while she may not be this household name like Aldrin, like Armstrong, that we all know, her contributions to the Apollo missions and to space travel in general were absolutely essential, building on the foundation that Ada Lovelace had set back in the early 19th century. So I want you to think about her. The next time you're looking up and you see a rocket launching or you're staring up at the moon, take, take a moment to remember Margaret Hamilton, the programming pioneer who helped make it all possible. Now I want to move away from STEM for a bit. I want to talk about women in business and I want to highlight some of their accomplishments. So let me tell you the story of Madam C.J. Walker, a woman who started from humble beginnings and then went on to become a groundbreaking entrepreneur and philanthropist. There's a whole Netflix drama about her and about her life. It's called Self-Made. I highly, highly recommend watching it if you want to feel inspired. Because if you ever feel like the cards that you are dealt are stacked against you, you can't even imagine the challenges that she went through and overcame. She was born in 1869 in Louisiana in the Deep South two years after slavery is abolished. She's the daughter of slaves, and she becomes an orphan at a very young age, which means that she had to start working and support herself and her siblings in order to survive. So around 1905, she starts to develop a scalp condition from all the stress in her life, and it causes her hair to fall out. 
And a lot of the existing products that are around at that time, they only make this condition worse. So she starts experimenting with different types of hair products, and then she develops a line of hair care specifically designed for black women. And at the time, there weren't many options available for black women at all when it came to hair care. The products that were out there were bad quality. A lot of them were actually damaging to the scalp. So Madam C.J. Walker develops this product that's an absolute game changer. And it's not just her product that makes her win and what makes her successful. It's her sales and marketing process that's truly trailblazing. It's really interesting to actually look at her business like a case study because in the late 1800s, she builds a manufacturing company and a franchise system. And this completely transforms her community as well. She starts employing hundreds of people in the Black community and giving them employment at the time when they had very limited options available. And one of the key ways that she scales is through a network of sales agents. She taught them, she trained them how to use and promote her products. And again, these agents were predominantly Black women who are looking for opportunities to make a living and to support their families. So she recognizes that these women could become very powerful advocates for her product since they understood the needs and the end consumer very well because they were selling to women like them. So she develops this system of training and support for her agents and then ultimately arms them with marketing information, with samples. And here's the key. She incentivizes them to sell more product through commission. She hosts beauty contests, all kinds of different demonstrations and events, and she showcases her product. She tries to build as much awareness as possible, and she uses her own personal story as being a Black woman who suffered with hair loss and markets herself as finding the solution to her own problems as a way to connect with her customers on a personal level. And I think what really drives her success isn't just the fact that she's a marketing genius and develops an incredible sales program, but the fact that she's so focused on developing a high-quality product and meets the needs of her customers. She was constantly looking for ways to innovate, too. She actually came up with a hot comb, which could straighten black hair without damaging it, and that was a massive breakthrough at the time. All of these strategies are what help her become a trailblazer in the world of entrepreneurship. And more importantly, she creates this model for how businesses can go out and achieve positive change by empowering women, promoting education, and then supporting social causes. She didn't just set out to go and make money. She wanted to give back to her community. She was employing hundreds of people. She was also a very big believer in education, and she was using her wealth to support Black schools, Black colleges, social organizations. She was one of the most generous philanthropists of her time. She donated millions of dollars to causes that she believed in. And it's thanks to her hard work, her ingenuity, her generosity, she became the first self-made female millionaire in the U.S. Not the first self-made female black millionaire, the first female millionaire in the U.S. And she didn't just create a successful business for herself and for future generations. She paved the way for future generations, and the impact that she has on female entrepreneurship is incredible. She's inspired countless people, including myself, to go out and pursue our dreams and make a positive impact on the world. The next woman I want to highlight shares the same last name, but they're not related at all. Like, I've looked into this deeply. They're not related by blood. They're not related by marriage. They did live around the same time. 
and her name is Maggie Lena Walker. She was the first female bank president. She was one badass businesswoman. She's a trailblazer in her own right, and her story is so full of inspiring achievements and triumphs. She's born in Richmond, Virginia in 1864. So she grows up in this world that's still really deeply impacted by segregation and discrimination towards Black people. And despite all of this, she's able to make a difference in her community as well. So at this point, specifically in banking, Black people are facing tons of discrimination. They're unable to access traditional banking services. They had limited opportunities to build wealth and to learn financial literacy. So Maggie Lena Walker recognizes this issue, and then she creates a bank specifically for Black people as a way of addressing it. And this is groundbreaking because she saw that people weren't getting access to credit, to mortgages, to other financial products. And she's like, okay, I'm going to open a bank. Like, can you imagine if more women thought like this and realized that they could go out and pursue whatever it is that they wanted and just absolutely knock down any barriers that were in their way? The world would be an incredible place. So back to Maggie Lena Walker, though. She creates a bank with the help of an organization called the Independent Order of St. Luke's. And she belongs to this organization. They provide life insurance, health care, other benefits to their members. And she creates a bank called the St. Luke Penny Saving Bank, which provides a safe and reliable place for Black people to deposit their money. And she offers loans to help them start businesses and purchase homes. And under her leadership, the bank grows rapidly. Its services expand. She starts to include checking accounts, mortgages, other financial products. By 1920, it becomes the largest Black-owned bank in the U.S. And it's got branches across different cities across the country. She was also a fierce advocate for education, and she worked tirelessly to create opportunities for students in Virginia. She founds a school for Black children, and then she ends up being the principal of that school for many years to come. Her legacy is what continues to inspire people and women in finance today. Now that we're talking about banks, I want to transition a little bit more into women in finance. There was a few badass women in this sector too that we've got to highlight. And the first one we're going to go through is Muriel Siebert. We're going to go through a ride of her life. She's the finance industry's own wonder woman. She was born in the 1920s in Ohio. She had a passion for finance and investing from a young age. And she worked her way up through different investment banks, but she realized at one point that it was a boys club. And that boys club mentality was holding her back. So what did she do? She broke down. She literally broke down the doors of one of the boys clubs. In 1967, she starts her own investment firm. It's called Muriel Siebert & Co. But that, that wasn't enough for her. She wanted to make history. So in 1969, she becomes the first woman ever to own a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. And she joins as the only woman amongst 1,365 male members on the floor. So she shatters glass ceilings like it was nothing. And this is 1969 again, very, very early on. It was just around that time that women started to earn the right to open bank accounts. So she becomes this voice for equality. She changed jobs a couple times throughout her career because she was paid less than men. And she went on to open her own brokerage firm and then serve as a superintendent of banking in the state of New York in 1977. When she was being interviewed 
about her life, there's a really common quote that comes up when I was doing some research. And she said that women must continue to knock down barriers. And she said that when a door is hard to open, if nothing else works, sometimes you just have to rear back and kick it open. And that's exactly how I feel every time I hear Shania Twain say, Let's go, girls. But Siebert wasn't content with just achieving her own success. She also wanted to make sure that the individual investors were protected in a fair and transparent way. She spoke out a lot about the lack of regulation and oversight in the financial industry, and she worked tirelessly to fight for greater protections for investors. She mentored a lot of different women, and she truly refused to let sexism and discrimination in the industry hold her back. So she paved the way for countless women to follow her footsteps in finance. And her impact is going to be felt for generations to come. Her story is so inspiring for anybody that wants to break down barriers and go out and achieve their dreams. I don't know if you guys have seen the trend here, but I've been going on a timeline, starting with women that made impact earlier in history and then to modern day. And the reason that I did that is because each trailblazer leans on the impact of their predecessor. Maggie Lena Walker leans on the impact of Madam C.J. Walker, just like Geraldine Weiss leans on the impact of Muriel Siebert. So next up, we have Geraldine Weiss, and she was born in 1929. And her nickname is the Great Dame of Dividends. She's the first woman who made a name for herself in the field of finance by proving that women could be just as good, if not better, than men at investing. And her and I have a pretty similar story outside of the fact that I grew up in Toronto and she grew up in California. She learned investing by reading books, by listening to her parents' conversations, and then studying business and finance in college. Despite her qualifications, though, when, when it came to actually getting a job in the field, there wasn't a single investment firm that was interested in hiring her as more than a secretary. So she faces rejection after rejection, but she refuses to give up. And she starts her own investment newsletter in 1966. Okay, keep in mind, again, non-married women in Canada are just getting the rights to open up their own bank accounts. And at the age of 40 in 1966, she launches an investment newsletter. And it's called Quality Trends. It's a newsletter that was focused on her unique way of investing, which was a value-based, dividend-oriented stock-picking strategy. And her goal, her ultimate goal, was to provide her subscribers with reliable, unbiased investment advice that they could trust. And so that she wasn't discriminated against when her newsletter was published, she started signing her newsletters with G. Weiss, which kept her identity a secret. So at first, she started out with a handful of subscribers, and then her newsletter gained this reputation of being really insightful and the analysis on it was very valuable investment advice so she became a very well-respected figure in the finance industry and then she built up a very loyal follower base her strategy was pretty simple but it was very effective she believed in investing in quality stocks that paid consistent dividends so rather than go after those flashy high-risk investments she went after consistent dividends and undervalued companies. The strategy was great because it provided her subscribers with reliable income that was consistent, and then it also protected their investments during market downturns. Over time, 
Weiss's value-based dividend strategy, her stock picking strategy, it outperforms some of the other strategies that other newsletters are writing about. And her and her subscribers actually achieve an above average return even in poor markets. So her success starts catching the attention of the media. And she's appearing in financial news programs. She's giving interviews to major newspapers and magazines. And she starts to become very successful. Her audience starts to grow. Her success starts to catch the attention of the media. She starts appearing in different financial newsletters and programs. She starts to give interviews to major newspapers and magazines. But despite her growing success, she still remains incredibly humble and focused on providing the best advice. So she continues to publish this newsletter for 36 years, and then she retires in 2002. Throughout her whole career, Weiss remains committed to educating investors about the importance of value-based investing and the power of dividends. And her legacy lives on through investment quality trends. It's a strategy that I follow to this day. Like, you guys know I love my dividends. You know I like value-based investing. And she provided a lot of valuable advice for people. But not only that, her work in the finance industry opened doors for countless other women, and it inspired the next generation of female investors. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode of the Miss Independent podcast. It was a little bit different, but I thought it would be incredible to highlight seven women you've never heard about before, and I hope now you remember their names. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave me a comment on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you guys get your podcasts from. It would mean the world to me. And until next week, ciao for now.